welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Today is August 12th, 2016, and as usual, I'm your host, William Hill. Just um, uh, uh, some brief updates as to uh, what we're doing with the podcast. Um, many of you have heard through the grapevine that uh, we were discontinuing the GPTS mobile app. Well, um, that has been reversed, um, so we, the seminary administration has determined to keep uh, utilizing uh, that means by which you can listen to this podcast and chapel sermons and, and uh, theology conference lectures that the seminary puts out each year right on your smartphone, whether it be Android or um, whether it be Android or Apple. Uh, either one, uh, you can download the, the mobile app from the respective stores. So continue to use it and um, Lord willing, in the next few days, it'll be up to date. I'd stopped updating it over the last few weeks, and so I'm a little behind, but Lord willing, I'll get, get it updated here in the next few uh, days. In addition to that, uh, as many of you know, it's August, and so we are uh, at the seminary quickly uh, getting ready for the fall 2016 uh, semester. New students coming in, orientation, the, the fall picnic, and um, just a a great time for the student body to get together uh, before things really get nutso and insane and papers are due and all that good stuff. So those are some things that are happening at the seminary. If you want to find out more information about Greenville Seminary, you can go to our website. It's gpts.edu. In addition to that, uh, would appeal to those who listen to the program on a regular basis who've been edified or encouraged uh, by it uh, to consider donating to the seminary. Um, as many of you know, we depend on the uh, faithful donations and prayer support of those who love what Greenville Seminary is trying to do. And so if you are able, um, I know the seminary would very much appreciate it, especially at this time in her, uh, in her life. Uh, in addition to the seminary website, we do have a website for the podcast. It's confessingourhope.com. Many of you already know that, but if you're a first-time listener, just head on over there, confessingourhope.com, and there you can get all the past broad- broadcasts, 100 and. 17, 18, 120 odd programs that have been done over the number last few years. And so avail yourself of those resources um, as you have time. Now, today we're going to be talking with a man who is a minister in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. He has written a, a little book. Um, the title of it is Presbytopia. Now, you may be thinking, what, is, what does that mean? Well, we'll hopefully find out on this discussion. Uh, his name is Ken Golden, and Ken, it's great to have you on the program. Uh, I know you've done a few of these already, but um, at least we got a shot at you at, at this particular time, and it's great to have you on. Thanks, Bill. I, I look forward to, to this time. Great. Ken, tell, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. Um, undoubtedly, uh, some of them probably have not heard of you, and so tell us your background, your history, and how the Lord has brought you to where you are at this point. In addition to that, uh, why don't you go ahead and, of course, tack on uh, your your purpose and, and reasons for writing this book, and maybe tell us what this title means. Well, uh, I'll start with a little bit of background. I was raised in a Jewish home uh, mm. in northern New Jersey, and really um, didn't have a whole lot of interest uh, in Judaism growing up. Turned away from it after I was bar mitzvahed and sought the the interests and the pleasures that everyone else in the world seeks and trying to find my, um, my meaning in life, uh, through those things. Uh, I studied art in college, went to Indiana university and later, uh, Pratt Institute in New York city, uh, sought to be an exhibiting artist in New York city. 
And I did have a show back in the early 90s, and I thought that my career was uh, on the right path, but a number of things happened. Uh, uh, the gallery that I showed at uh, closed. Uh, I didn't have the, the time and the means to pursue that career uh, as um, on a, and as a regular basis as I needed to. I needed to support my family. And then something happened in 1996 that uh, gave me greater um, pause, and that was my conversion to Christianity. I was uh, mm. I'm married uh, to... Um, uh, my wife was raised Roman Catholic, and uh, some, some members of her family left the Catholic Church in 1996 to become part of a, a Protestant church, uh, and they invited us to a local congregation of that uh, church movement. And the first time we visited, uh, we were... Um, it, it was quite different than anything I had seen. It was, it was quite um, energetic and a, a little out of my comfort zone. But we, my wife and I had, had a desire to read the Bible together or at least study it so that we could better understand each other. And this group gave us that opportunity. I wasn't really interested in, in converting. Uh, being Jewish, uh, that's the last thing that was on my mind. Uh, too many um, problems with doing that. And, and yet, uh, as I started reading the Bible, I had picked up Bibles in the past and put them down, not really all that interested, but suddenly uh, a light bulb turned on and I, and I had an interest. And I was reading it and really caring about the story, caring about uh, this person, Jesus Christ, who's a taboo. Uh, most Jews don't even like to mention his name. And right. I, kept reading uh, about him and, and more and more finding myself believing uh, in, in his claims. There were some stumbling blocks, and I really did not understand the reason why he had to die on the cross. And in order to help me uh, understand that, the group I was studying with um, brought in a, a young man who was a Jewish convert who was living in Brooklyn. And we studied together, and he encouraged me to read the Old Testament, which I had neglected up until this time, and I hadn't looked at since I was 13. Mm. So we started, I started reading through Genesis, and that went fairly quickly. I read through Exodus, and hit a bit of a roadblock midway through as I got into the law code, and then got into Leviticus, and that was uh, a bit of a slow read compared to the other books. But when I got to chapter 16, and read about the Day of Atonement, which uh, in Hebrew, Yom Kippur, uh, one of the festivals that my family and I uh, used to go to. I never enjoyed it. It was always a dreary uh, time, time of fasting. I was quite bored uh, being in the synagogue uh, for Yom Kippur. I read it from the Old Testament, and suddenly everything made sense. All the dots were connected, and I understood why Jesus had to die, especially as a Jewish person. And I did have a, what people call a conversion experience. Uh, it was wonderful. It was warm and, and mm-hmm. fuzzy feeling and, and really euphoria. But it was also fleeting. And I came back down to earth and I had some decisions to make. Uh, God had already made a decision for me. I, I, I definitely understood that later. But I had to, I had to tell my parents... Uh, and and make some other life decisions, such as joining a church. And the group we were studying with was had some problems 
that, that we were not comfortable with. So we sought out a church, and we ended up becoming members uh, of a local independent uh, evangelical church in northern New Jersey, and uh, tried to settle in there and um, saw that uh, despite uh, some of the uh, the warmth or outward warmth and, and, and jargon that we were hearing, there was, there was, um, some sin that was, that was there that you find anywhere in any church, uh, mm-hmm. that, that no church is perfect. But while, while we were there, uh, we uh, met a man who was an elder in that church who had reformed convictions. And I didn't really know much about reformed Christianity. I had heard rumors of things like predestination and, and other 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 things that that most Christians dismissed um, as nonsense, and so I didn't really know what to make of that. And I uh, went with him and others to a Promise Keepers event back in 1997, and confessed my sins uh, on the pavement in a 90 degree day. Ready? Which to- which Promise Keepers was it? It was the uh, Million Man event in Washington, D.C., on the mall. Okay, all right. I went to a Promise Keepers in Indianapolis. Okay, I, I said it. I went to a Promise Keepers in Indianapolis. There, everybody knows now that I went to Promise Keepers. Yes, I did go to one, so I was curious if it was the same one. <laughs> it wasn't, but that's okay. Yeah, and it Sorry, was, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Sure, sure. I, I, I confess that I've been to two, and the second one was was somewhat of a deal breaker for me to, to not go to a third. But the first one was quite powerful and, and it really it really um, provoked me to want to confess my sins to my family and I truly believe that I was a changed man after hearing uh, those speeches and experiencing the power of the event. But when I got home, uh, it didn't take me it took me less than 24 hours to revert back to my old form. So the the magic of the event really didn't didn't stick, uh, unfortunately. And my friend, who had these reformed convictions, suggested that we go to an event uh, at a local uh, United Reformed Church. I didn't know anything about them either. And uh, this was a, a conference on uh, reformed theology, and it was led by a man who would later become one of my professors. Uh, I had no idea, of course, but his name was Michael Horton. And he gave this speech, and I found some of it compelling, uh, and I also found some of it uh, offensive, because it was uh, it was saying some things that, in, in, in a very strong way, that that I hadn't considered. But it was also answering some lingering questions that I still had uh, from my studies with the first church that I that were unhealthy. Uh, so I began to study. Uh, what it means to be reformed. I, I read some Calvin, some Burkhoff, and other resources, um, modern reformation, and things like that. And over the course of time, I became more and more convicted about these teachings, and less and less enamored uh, with uh, the um, the present situation. So my family and I um, moved on uh, to another church. Uh, we became part of the Christian Reformed Church, in northern New Jersey, Dutch Reformed denomination, and there I, I had an opportunity to, to actually do a little teaching, despite the fact I wasn't an officer or anything. Um, it was a wonderful experience there. It was a great church. Uh, there were some some differences that I was having, though, with some of the, the teachings of the overall denomination, and I felt that I, as I 
as I began more and more to feel called to ministry, I didn't feel like I could serve in the CRC in, in a good conscience. Uh, so we left there peaceably. Uh, we have very good friends uh, in the CRC. And as we were considering seminaries, um, I chose the one that uh, that had uh, some professors who I was reading. Uh, many of those articles uh, that, that were really influential in me uh, moving from the position that I held to, to more of a reform conviction were teaching there. Uh, so we moved cross-country. Uh, I was working in pharmaceuticals at the time. Uh, I, I, really, I really didn't know what to paint anymore um, after I became a Christian. Uh, I really struggled with painter's block, and I was working in the pharmaceutical industry as a way of paying the bills, and that turned into a career. But I quit that career, uh, taking God's lead, and um, moved my family cross-country and attended seminary uh, and graduated 10 years ago. My first call was a little church in um, northeast, northeastern Iowa in Independence, and I now uh, serve as a church planner in eastern Iowa in Davenport at Sovereign Grace Orthodox Presbyterian Church. What, what seminary did you attend? I attended Westminster, California. Okay, okay, very good. It's funny how you have to say that, right? Westminster, California, because if you just say Westminster, us East Coast guys automatically assume Philadelphia. Right, right. And, and well, I guess I don't, but many do. <laughs> I usually just ask right after that, oh, which one? <laughs> but sure. anyway, no, that's so you were raised, you, were, you, you grew up in the New Jersey area. Am I, did I get that right? Correct. And then you went to seminary in California. How was that? Um, as far as were you, you were, were you married at this time? Um, sure. Yeah, you were married to children. Yeah, we had um, three children by that time, uh, and we had our fourth child, my second year in seminary, uh, which I don't wow. recommend doing. It's uh, it's really um, a train wreck uh, for yeah. as far as as far as devoting proper time and. And honestly, I when I was in seminary, I um, I was very much plugged into getting the best grades possible, and uh, it's a it's definitely a balancing act. If you bring a family to seminary, you have to take care of them, and um, sometimes we don't do a good job of that uh, in in the midst of our our passion uh, to learn God's word. So, so you moved your family across country to go to to go to. Um to go to uh, seminary in California. How, how, was, how was that as far as uh, just family life, culture shock, different from growing up in the J- New Jersey area? It had to be different in some respects. It was, it was different. It wasn't as big a culture shock as when I moved from California to um, rural Iowa, of course. That was, that was the largest um, jump of, of any moves we've ever made. Yeah, so I'm familiar. I'm familiar with that feeling. I I went from large city, large city, most of my life, to now pastoring in a small, small town in North Carolina. And and, and in fact, when I was when I was examined on the floor of presbytery, I was actually asked that question by a presbyter: How are you going to adjust as having grew up in a big city your whole life um, to a small, as it were, country church um, in the middle of North, you know, rural North Carolina? And I, I said, it's a great question. I don't know. <laughs> I think is. that was my answer. I don't know. <laughs> um, by the Lord's grace, I guess. But anyway, so so the Lord brought you to Iowa. Um, 
And then you, you've just recently written this book. It was released 2016, and, and Prospetopia is the name of the book. Please tell us, what does that mean? Well, uh, I'll preface this by saying that I really struggled. I had a title block, you could say. Originally, the, the manuscript came out of uh, a desire to, to put together, even reinvent the wheel, so to speak, regarding membership classes. I was, I was trained, uh, my wife and I uh, were brought into the, the OPC through um, Confessing Christ by Calvin Knox Cummings. And, and that's, a, that's a really solid, time-tested book. But there are things in that book that I wanted to present differently uh, to the people I was teaching. And there were things that were not even mentioned in the book that I wanted to bring out. So I found myself over the course of time working my own outline and replacing the book and adding things and subtracting things and reinventing the wheel. And over the course of time, that, that book took on a very uh, specific flavor of being a, a membership class for the Orthodox Presbyterian Church that I would use locally. Um, what changed was uh, I was asked to review a book uh, a couple of years ago a book that uh, a church might want to put on their book table for people with absolutely no background uh, in the Reformed tradition. And I read the book, and it was everything in the book was solid. Uh, it was confessional. It was, uh, there were good biblical arguments. But one problem that I had with it was the scope. And the, the scope was it was way too much information and, and advanced information for its target audience. Sure. Uh, one of the challenges that I've seen uh, in, in visiting churches as a parishioner and also as a pastor, people coming to our churches, is our greatest strength is our greatest weakness. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we are a very intellectual, uh, a very deep uh, tradition, and our, our, our system is, is well-developed, uh, it's profound, even, but at times it, it, it's, it's extremely um, advanced and difficult uh, for newbies, people with no background uh, in in what we believe, to come in and 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 actually begin to understand it without feeling overwhelmed. You know, I think that's a really interesting perspective because I remember when I um, I didn't have the same background as you. I was raised in a Baptist home. My wife, my wife is similar to your wife. She was raised in a Roman Catholic uh, home, and um, but I remember my first experience in a Presbyterian church. I mean, I was just overwhelmed by the sheer vast amount of information and and intricacies and doctrines that were being paraded around, as though everybody in the room just knew exactly what everybody was talking about. I remember my first my first infant baptism I witnessed. I almost had a heart attack and ran out of the room. I mean, I, I didn't know what to think of it. Um, so I think your perspective is very good. It's helpful be realizing that the vast majority of people can just get blown away or bombed or even find themselves underwater with the sheer amount of data that exists in a well-developed system as the Reformed faith. And so uh, that's one of the reasons why I really appreciate your book, frankly. Um, it tries to take away, it doesn't take that away, but it distills it in such a way that the average person can get it, if, if you know what I mean. Does that make yeah, any sense? Yeah, absolutely. That, that's, that's the primary purpose of the book is 
I was asked to review this other book, which, which I think from a, you know, from a reform perspective is, is a very solid piece of work, but for its scope, um, really didn't, didn't hit the mark. Cause I think if I was, if that was the first book that I was ever given, uh, with no background in, in, in the reform tradition, I would have felt completely overwhelmed and, and, mm-hmm. and stupid even that how can I, how can I possibly wade through this stuff? So, so, and you can create, and you can create with people. I think um, a certain level of exasperation. It's like I, I can't learn all this. I'm too old to learn all this um, at this point in my life, anyway. Um, you can kind of create that that set them up for failure mentality before they even get going. And so, I think there's some wisdom there in, in what you're trying to accomplish with the book and what you're articulating. I think it's very helpful um, for the average um, for the average pew sitter. Thanks. I, and I, I had some choices to make at that point. Obviously, um, you know, I, I wrote the review, and uh, and but, but from my own perspective, if I had some some critique of of, of this particular book, what can I do positively? Uh, and it it really it really spurred me on to to take my outline, what I was using for personal use, and and to consider writing something that would be an alternative, something that I felt would, would be more helpful for, for, for the scope of such a work. And mm-hmm. I, chose, I chose to write, and, and this is my first published work, and so it was, it was definitely a labor of love and something that I overkilled over the course of eight years. I mean, hundreds of revisions on this book. Tends, tends, tends to be the way I work anyway. But I really wanted, I wanted to, I didn't want to lose the profundity of our tradition. I didn't want to lose the richness of our doctrine, but I wanted to be able to present it in a way that the average person could could jump right in and say, hey, I, 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 can, I get this. Uh, these are deep things, and I have to think about some of these paragraphs more than once, but the language is in a stumbling block. I do quote from the confessions uh, in, in various places, but, the, but they, they don't dominate the text. Uh, one of the other reasons why I wrote this book is that I think there's a lot of people who are investigating our tradition. Uh, maybe they've been raised in a Baptist or a broad evangelical uh, church, and, and their primary interest is not in historical creeds and confessions. Mm-hmm. That might come later. They might come sure. to appreciate uh, our creeds and confessions as the roadmaps that they are. Uh, but, but what their interest is, is what does the Bible say about these things? Right. And, and right. I, think, I, I think sometimes in our tradition, we, we, we rightly want to, we want to be truthful and, and, and not ashamed of, of who we are historically. Uh, but at the same time, I think the primary standard that we want to get across to people is we are a biblical church. Mm-hmm. And we're confessional because we're biblical uh, in that order. Uh, so, so I wanted to present and make a case for what we believe primarily from Scripture, secondarily uh, from our confessions. Yep. Totally agree with you. So important to keep the Bible center place. It's so easy as a teaching elder or minister to kind of run back to our confessions. And it, while we b- believe that the, our confessions, the, our Westminster Standards, are an accurate summary of what the Bible teaches— that's where we are, and we need to get our people there and understand that. But, but 
but use them as a map to guide them to that place, not have it dominate the conversation necessarily. And and I appreciate what you're saying. You titled the book Presbytopia. Page two of your book mentions how this name, which you admit is a made-up name, I was glad to hear that because um, I I thought maybe I was just, well, I'm, I I felt stupid. Presbytopia. I'm like, what does that mean? I thought I I had an idea what it might have meant, but you, you write here, this brings to mind the other topias or places. Utopia, which means no place, describes an ideal society that's humanly impossible. Dystopia, a bad place, suggests a corrupt, even apocalyptic society. Likewise, presbytopia, a made up word, means old place. No, no, you made up the word apparently, or at least I think you did. Um, why old place? Well, I have a confession to make. Uh, the title was was chosen well after the book was was in its final form, or it was in the process of final editing with the publisher, and they were looking for something that was striking. They didn't want a long title that sounded like other titles. They wanted something that that would jump off of the page. They Hook. suggest. A hook, yeah. They, they, they suggested another another name that I, I didn't particularly care for, and I was I was really mining. I was spending a lot of time in, in things like um, thesaurus.com, looking at synonyms and this and that on the internet. And for whatever reason, I, I had utopia in in my brain, and I was trying to I was trying to find ways to add a suffix to part of who we are as Presbyterians because the subtitle is what it means to be Presbyterian. And then I, I I started plugging in different things and Presbytopia, Hey, that has a ring to it. And I I submitted that title along with a couple of other titles that I preferred that I thought were, were, were better titles, but the publisher really liked that title and it, it fit what they were going for. And it does have somewhat of a catchy ring to it. So then I had to, I had to defend it. And I, I defend it in the sense that we, as a tradition, are an old place. And old places have fallen on hard times in the modern world. I think people are looking for sound bites. They're looking for things that are fresh and uh, not old school, nothing um, beyond five years ago, things like that. It's kind of a, a symptom of the modern mind. Uh, mm-hmm. of, of modern arrogance. And and I think that there's a lot we can learn from old places. Um, old places need to be presented in new ways so that modern people can read them, which is why I wrote the book the way I did. But I think we want to hold on to the old teachings um, when they're biblical teachings. Uh, the Bible is, is the oldest place of all. Um, God's uh, history of redemption is timeless, and we don't want to lose that. So I think our tradition, which is older, uh, captures, and that's certainly a pun on Presbyterian, uh, older or elder. Um, we're an elder tradition, and we don't want to to lose that. So I think Presbytopia, even though it sounds like a work of fiction to some people, and it's a little too close to the word presbyopia, which means far-sightedness. I learned <laughs> right. that after the fact. Uh, but <laughs> we are a far-sighted tradition, after all. But 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 it does. I guess it does capture the the importance of of holding on and seeing the benefits of of older things when they're true. Yep. 
Yeah, well said. I, I think you're absolutely right. Now, you divide the book helpfully into three um, different um, three different um, um, divisions. That's kind of redundant. The book is divided into three parts. Um, and so what I want to do for the sake of the listeners and to try to get them excited about the book, um, even from the standpoint of recognizing that um, very little is written in such a way that can be used like in a new members class or target new Christians who um, are just joining a Presbyterian church and have absolutely no idea what they're doing uh, other than uh, they have a credible profession of faith and they love the Lord and they want to serve them. Um, the rest of it's very foreign to them. But you, div- you divide the book in, into three helpful parts. First, Christian Essentials. Second, Reformed Distinctives. And then the third, The Means of Grace, which I really was thankful you had that section in there. I've just preached a sermon on this very subject um, recently, and um, so I was very grateful that that was there in the book. But just sketch for me, or for the listeners, um, Christian Essentials. What are you trying to accomplish, and, and what what are you highlighting in that first section? Well, I think to, to join to join churches in the, in the OPC and the PCA, um, one must make a credible profession of faith. Uh, Presbyterians don't require um, members to subscribe to every jot and tittle of the confessions as as, as other um, Reformed tradition churches do, um, and I might be overstating that as well. But so, but we require um, members to be able to credibly profess their faith uh, in in what the essentials of Scripture are and. And in order to do that, I, I wanted to, to to take people through systematically, to hold them by the hand even at times, and and help them connect the dots. And mm-hmm. you have we have to start with with the Bible because if the Bible isn't what it says it is, then everything else falls apart and sure. nothing else matters. So I I devote the first chapter on some of the the basic uh, teachings that you would find in, in, in most membership classes about the Bible, uh, including the, the importance of it being a closed book. Uh, from there, I think it's important to start with God, because the Bible starts with God, uh, Genesis 1.1, and we need to know who God is before we can understand who we are. Mm-hmm. So I, I spend some time talking about the attributes and and I think the Westminster Confession of Faith uh, outlines uh, some of these things nicely, so I, I use some of some of their language in that chapter. I also talk about the Trinity, and some people don't know what to do with the Trinity. It's like you sign on the dotted line, yep, I believe in this Orthodox teaching, and now I'm going to move on. Never think about it again. But really, the, the Trinity is crucial to, to, to the, the plan of salvation, to who God is, and... And one of the things I bring out, which I haven't seen in a lot of texts, is if we want to understand love uh, in all eternity, because God did not need us to love, God has always loved, because mm-hmm. he is triune. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, so the idea of love originates in eternity with the Trinity. And that's, kind of, that, that's my hook to get people to even think about the Trinity as something that's practical, uh, instead of this ivory tower um, doctrine that very few people can understand, it's absolutely essential to to our to our understanding of Christianity. And from God, I move on to man, 
uh, and I, I title it not who man is, but who man was. Before you before you go to that before you go to that section, I just wanted to um, point out to the listeners. Um, um, you know, Mr. Golden has mentioned the Trinity here, and he's an, or, an OPC minister. And if I'm not if I'm not in error here, I think Ken, isn't it true that in your is it 2011 your 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 book of church order changed the membership vows to include um, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Yes. So that yeah. a member had to had to profess that um, overtly. I mean, clearly. Um, so this is an, a very important subject for people to understand what they're confessing. Not that they just say, "Okay, yes, I believe God's the Trinity," but what does that mean? It's more than just, "Okay, so I believe that." But 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 what is it you believe? And and since it's a vow of membership, you're 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 stating before God's people and before God Himself that you actually believe this. Well, it'd be helpful to know what you believe before you actually make that vow. But isn't that true that, that they did make that change? I think it was 2011. Yeah, as far as I know, I believe that that's the date. And, and, and I think that's a helpful um, addition to the vows to make that explicit. But even even with that change, what, what what's important is, is educating uh, new members on what it means to even take that vow, uh, on the implications of the Trinity. Uh, if... if the, the the one thing that that I that I stress in, in in my classes is that membership should not be uh, you know done as quickly as possible. Um, let's get these people, race them through this material as quickly as possible, so we can get them on the rolls and they can become tithing, uh, responsible members, whatever. No, we want people to understand they're taking vows. Uh, the they need to understand what they're getting themselves into. And, and that's why we take our time. That's why, that's why I, I wrote more of an extensive, I used to refer to it as a maximalist approach uh, to membership right. rather than a minimalist approach, because the worst thing that can happen is somebody joins your church and then they hear a sermon on infant baptism or they see it, or they hear some, some talk of this, this, strange teaching called limited atonement, which of course we, we hold to and, and, and we rejoice in uh, because, of, because of what it really means, and, and they're offended by it, and they say, I didn't know about that. Right. Why did I join this church? This is crazy. So, so we want to make sure that people, people are prepared to count the cost about these things uh, so that, so that they, can, they can be prepared for these things. Hmm. Well, that's very helpful, and um, as it is needed uh, as well. Now, let's see. Where were we? We were on. Um, I lost my page. <laughs> chapter, chapter three. Yes, thank you, man. Thank you. Yeah, I I titled that chapter "Who He Was" because there has certainly something changed in in the course of history. Uh, we're not um, the same uh, person that that man was when he was created. Man was created uh, to, uh, as an image bearer of God, to reflect God's qualities. Uh, I even talk about sonship, and I and I thank uh, our publisher and his editor for for helping me uh, with some of this. I, I can't say enough about Christian Focus and the the wonderful um, uh, publisher and and just the opportunity I have with them. Uh, they they not only helped me grammatically and and conceptually, but you know, 
bringing the book into its final form, but they really challenged me at times. And uh, the editor I worked with, John Van Eyck, um, who's a member, uh, who's a, a minister over in Scotland, just did a fabulous job. And we had wonderful dialogue and, and challenged me on a number of points that I felt were weak on. Um, and I see, I see now that I was weak on them. And, and he really helped me think about the sonship um, issue in, in, in regards to the image and which, which is certainly, certainly in, you know, evident in scripture. Um, and in writing this chapter, I, I, I also wanted to, to mention the, the idea of bringing in the idea of the covenant of works. Mm-hmm. Uh, co- covenant's one of those buzzwords that, that are often, you see them in church titles, you know, church names, you hear people covenanting with people as a verb, and what does that mean? It's it, it's this mysterious word. There's different definitions of it depending upon where you study, depending on what church you're in. And I I, I try to try to make it as simple as possible. Um, some people might find my definition to be too simple, but I call it a, a legal relationship, mm-hmm. which tries to capture kind of both sides of uh, of the coin. And we see this relationship uh, between God and man. He creates man to be in relationship with him, but there, there are rules uh, that, that, that man has to follow. And God, God is so gracious in, in entering into this relationship with man. And he gives, he gives the first man this opportunity uh, to, uh, to move beyond the state that he's in. He's created innocent. He's created with the ability to choose good and evil there's sin is not even in the picture yet. Um, man is capable of obeying God perfectly 100% of the time, which is something that we can barely even imagine. It's so foreign to us because we're on the other side uh, of the, uh, of, of that chasm and seeing what the covenant was, what it involved, um, what it promised and seeing how man failed in so many ways. Uh, even though he was he was so capable of achieving it, um, brings I think brings the gospel into greater light to to show how how great God's love is for us. And even though man failed in such a horrible way, God provided um, the the one person who who could succeed in 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 such a way. Uh, so so I do spend a lot of time on on the covenant of works. Um, which segues nicely into the next chapter, which really picks up the story. There's a lot of storytelling in some of these chapters, uh, kind of a blow-by-blow action that's taking place in the Garden of Eden in the dialogue. And uh, we see in in chapter 4, which is titled Sin, What Man Has Done, uh, not only historically what happened, but the implications for us. Um, For we are all born of Adam, and we not only inherit uh, the polluted uh, nature that that he's given that he's given us, but also the guilt uh, that that he incurred is is uh, credited to our account. You could say imputed. And we talk about I talk about some of the consequences uh, that sin leads to. By the end of the chapter, I'm hoping to to paint a picture of utter despair, mm-hmm. so that the reader, if they've never considered these things, We'll finish this chapter and think, what possible hope do I have? This is right. 
I, I, I have no chance on my own of pleasing God, none whatsoever. Which brings us to chapter five. Chapter four was what man has done. Chapter five is what God has done, or I could have titled it who God has done, which might have sounded a little weird, but really we're talking about a who, a person, Jesus. Mm -hmm. And here I introduce the covenant of grace. And uh, from from the uh, the outworkings of the uh, the original um, idea of the covenant of grace uh, in Genesis three fifteen, and a man's response to that, um, his faithful response to that, to um, the way uh, it works out um, in history, uh, the incarnation, the reason uh, why God took on human nature. I, I talk about why these things are important, too. It's not simply to be able to get the facts in people's heads, but to help them understand why these are important, because they might have to explain it to somebody. Um, that's the goal, isn't it? To to be able to to share, to be able to, um, to give the reasons for the hope we have. Sure. So, so, so I do talk about why Jesus has to be God, why Jesus has to be man. I talk about the second Adam, how Adam failed on all accounts, and how the second Adam, Jesus Christ, succeeds on all accounts. And then I talk about the substitutionary sacrifice, uh, how he ultimately dealt with sin. Sin still needs to be dealt with, even though he, he obeys the law in our place. We talk about the sacrifices, what they point to. Uh, I talk about why uh, Jesus' sacrifice is necessary. And then the capstone of the resurrection is, is mentioned and um, why the resurrection is essential, um, why it gives us the greatest hope of all. And I, I would say that chapter five is certainly one of the high points of the book. It, um, when I was writing it and a number of people have, have mentioned to me that they, they've appreciated that. Mm-hmm. So that's the, of course, then you deal with the two chapters on the spirit, and um, which are critically important to the whole aspect of a credible profession of faith, and and how the spirit applies what God has done, and then um, works in us to bring about further sanctification and growth in grace, and those kinds of things. Now, part two, you deal with you titled it "Reform Distinctives." Um, which is fine, of course. Um, they are the Reformed distinctives, but uh, what specifically do you deal with there? Sure. In, just in, in brief outline sketch form. Yeah, and I and I would I would also mention that the reason these are in a separate chapter is because these are we believe as Reformed Christians are extremely important teachings, and they really undergird uh, some of the essential the essentials of the faith. Um, chapter eight, which is which I title Tulip, which is really the doctrines of grace, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints are, are extremely important teachings. But I think you and I would, would agree that there are many Christians who, who don't hold uh, to these. Um, they might hold to a few of them. Um, they might really struggle with some of them. And yet we can still call them brothers in the Lord, um, even though we feel that uh, the Reformed system is, is, is the healthiest expression of Christianity, it's not the only expression. And, and that's where, where, where I mentioned that, that Jesus commanded, 
commanded his disciples to teach everything he has commanded. Uh, the gospel and the essentials of the faith are, are not everything he has commanded. Uh, so so there, there are essentials to what we believe that make us Christian, the essence of the faith, and then there's what we call the what's beneficial um, right. in the faith, what, what, what makes a healthier church, what makes us uh, grow better as Christians. And I believe that's, that's the, the reason I wrote chapter two is these are important doctrines that people need to know we're going to be teaching, but these are also healthy doctrines. Um, understanding uh, TULIP is, is, is a way of building assurance uh, in the Christian life. Um, understanding what healthy church government looks like is a, is a way of protecting um, not, not only the, 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 the peace and purity and unity of the church, but, but as a person comes into the church, knowing that they do have rights uh, and they do have recourse. Uh, the chapter on worship is, is an important uh, chapter in, in an age where people do whatever they want in worship, and, and much of it is not healthy. So, so I wrote these these chapters as as a way of introducing what we what we do, but also why we do it. Yep. Yeah, and a very important part of the equation, not just knowing, but then doing. They go together, and they're not to be uh, separated. And then the third uh, final chapter is one I, I alluded to, or, or a section I should say, uh, alluded to before. Uh, and that's, of course, the means of grace. And there you you highlight you know, what I think is you know, badly lacking in our church uh, churches today, um, not necessarily Reformed churches, but in other churches, the centrality of the preached word. Now, why for you is that so critically important? Well, we, well this, this part really has to do with how we grow. Uh, all of these doctrines that we've already learned in the book— um, the question we need to be asking is how do we receive uh, this growth? How do we how do we grow in faith, in holiness, and all of these these other important things? And I think that the Bible is clear that preaching is the primary means of growth. It's food, and and if you want to talk about maybe like a multi-course meal, it's the main course. It's the steak. Uh, it's 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 really it's a protein. It's it's really what. The, the primary way that that Christians grow um, in holiness and, and faith, um, the sacraments are are certainly not they're not throwaways by any means. They're extremely important as well, but they depend upon uh, the word. They don't. They're not. They can't be sacraments apart from the word. So the word is is more central than the sacraments. Right. But but the sacraments are extremely important too and. Um, what I, I, I touch upon this in the book. I would say further that, that God condescends to, uh, to, to, to show us and to give us things, not only because we're sinners, but because we're creatures. And, you know, we have this spoken word, this written word, but he also appeals to all of our senses. Uh, he, he gives us pictures, as it were. And so that we don't need to adorn our churches with pictures because we have uh, the Lord's Supper and baptism. Uh, these are powerful um, means of grace uh, that, that, that help us um, along the way, uh, that, are the, that are the visible work. Um, we certainly don't want to diminish their power. We don't want to 
to give them some kind of uh, magic, magical um, ability apart apart from the word. Um, right. But they are powerful. They're means of grace. Yep. And and I think you know, sadly, I, I tell this to people as I take them through these chapters. Uh, I I can't think of any teachings in the history of the church that have been more divisive, that have created more separation and frustration and even anger and violence than the sacraments. Uh, things that are supposed to bring God's people together uh, have, mm. have, have created so much division, and uh, a lot of that, obviously, the, has to do with our sin. Some of it, I think, has to do with the fact that these are extremely complex things and, and difficult and require lots of explanation. Um, so I, I try to take the time to unpack these uh, these sacraments from the Old Testament and, and to, to connect the dots and, and to, to take a little more time on these things than I would on, on other subjects. Yeah, and, and, and I think you're right to make that observation that the sacraments have created a great deal of stress for lack of a better word, uh, yeah. uh, animosity um, where they shouldn't, and and I do love the way you put you 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 talk about it. You know, the sacraments are a picture that God there that God gives to us in our confessions. Talking about them being sensible signs and mm-hmm. um, and have to explain to people what that means. It's sensible because it, we engage our senses. You know, it's, it's not some um, big theological word. It's a simple word, um, but it helps us. We touch, taste, we, we see, we identify, we feel these things. I mean, and, and they're important to us because we're weak. <laughs> we need yeah. these kinds of things because we have weak faith in believing. And God gives us these graciously to us to help us um, as we pilgrim through this life. Just a question about the book in general. Um, uh, certainly the target audience for a book like this would be um, to be utilized somewhat in like a new members class or with relatively um, young um, Christians, theologically and otherwise. Um, but how could someone such as um, a more mature Christian who's pretty well, uh, has a good grip on most of these, if not all of these subjects, how could they gain value from the book? Well, I think um, you learn these things right off the bat. And I think really understanding things as, as you and I learned when we were in seminary and in college and whatnot is repetition, repetition, repetition. Sure. Uh, it, information goes in and out of our brains every day. There's so much to, there's so much we need to, to learn on our jobs, uh, to, to learn as we interact with people, simply getting things done that we need reinforcement and, the goal of this book is to provide reinforcement, but not in a simplistic way, obviously. The, the language is, is familiar. It's, it, it's, it's, it's not formal language. I use a lot of contractions because I want to write in a way that people talk uh, sure. often. And, and that, that's, that's one hook to, to get people uh, into reading the book. But I want the, the truths in the book, some of the depths, to be something that they can chew on as well. So there are so I, I I state things and I kind of move on from them. I don't I don't elaborate in every chapter on every single truth. So this is really a place to start. It's not a place. It's not going going to be your 
the ultimate um, resource on Reformed theology. There are much deeper and, and fuller works that, that are far more profound than this. But, but this, is, this is a place to at least consider um, some of these deeper truths, a jumping point in, in, into these things, a place yep. to go back, especially the deeper truths require uh, quite a bit of a time commitment in, in, in our busy lives. Not everybody is ready to jump right into a systematic as, the, as they want to grow. So they can jump into a couple of pages in a particular chapter in this book and it'll give them food for thought. It'll yep. it'll open up an avenue that they hadn't considered, and then they might want to explore it deeper. Yep, absolutely. One of the things that I do appreciate about this book, uh, there's many things, but the one thing that I do like, and um, I wish more books did this, is that at the end of each section, um, chapter, um, there's a series of discussion questions. Now, and they're not and they're just like what it sounds like. They're discussion questions. They're not just, okay, here's the question, go back in the chapter and find the answer. But you have to kind of think a little bit. It's not just, you know, cut and dry, but you have to work through it. Some of them are, but, but many of them are, are of such that you have to think through the question a little bit and kind of ex, you know, explore it a little bit. And, and I think that's very helpful, especially if you're going to utilize this book in a new members setting kind of scenario where you can actually give the students, if you will, um, something to do between the Sundays or whenever you have your new members class, um, give them some homework as it were. Everybody hates that word. Um, I don't like it very much, but, um, but give them something to do to think through some of these things. And so that they're learning and discovering these things as the, as it were on their own, as they work through the material that's being taught in the class. And so I think that's very beneficial, um, especially for a newer Christian. It just sort of helps guide them in the right direction instead of just kind of leave it, you know, dump the information in their head and hope they get it. Uh, I've discovered that when people discover m- information um, through that kind of work, they tend to retain it a lot longer um, as opposed to I tell them something and they agree. Okay, got it. Three weeks later, I ask them about it and they, what, what are you talking about? So right. um, I think that's very helpful um, part of the book and it's a tool that can be u- utilized very easily. I could see myself, very easily tying this in a new member setting uh, situation to um, give to other people to do. Yeah, I think you hit it on the head. I'm, I I want to I want to restate questions that will help them retain the information. And if they write it out themselves, I don't I, I don't normally ask people to do that myself because I do a lot of review with people as I'm going. But but certainly there there might be there might be a student in. in Books like this, uh, you, you still have to customize to the students you're working with. I, I do sure. I, I do one-on-one typically uh, when I do membership. I do it in people's dining rooms, living rooms. I, I, it's a ministry opportunity. It, not, not everybody not everybody can do that. If you have a larger church, I mean, in in time commitments, but. But as you know, as a church planner, it's an opportunity for me to get to know the person, and and I can tailor this book to their needs. And there might be somebody who really needs to write out these things and 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 go through the homework with me. It could also be used in a in a small group study uh, out outside of uh, a membership class. Because this book, uh, there, there are there are Christians who who really need a refresher course in in um, the essentials. Uh, they're, 
there's lots of um, secondary and tertiary purposes for this book mm-hmm. that, that I envisioned, primarily bringing people into the church, though. So you could ignore the introduction and jump right into to the Bible and do uh, a small group Bible study with it. Yep. Yeah, there's many different ways this, this book can be employed. It's 135 page. I think it's 135 pages, if I remember correctly. Yep, 135. You don't count the advertisement on the last page. Um, 135 pages. It's not uh, overly difficult to read. I don't mean that in a snarky kind of way. I just it's very for the average person. It's not written for seminary students or seminary trained guys necessarily. Um, so you don't have to have a dictionary sitting next to you. And now some may need to do that depending on where they are on their walk with the Lord and where they are on their understanding of these things. But, but it's written in simple language as, as we typically talk. Um, and I think for that, for the goal it has to, to introduce and bring people into the a right understanding of these very important doctrines, I think it does accomplish that by that kind of conversation instead of, you know, using very heady theological words. I was just reading Dabney Systematic Theology yesterday, and I thought, man, <laughs> I wow, uh, what? You know, and I went to seminary for four years. <laughs> so um, I could see that could be daunting task for a new Christian, whereas this book accomplishes a lot of the same things, and, and but uses language they're used to. And I think that for that, it's very helpful. Yeah, you, you mentioned dictionary, actually, which is uh, a nice segue into Appendix 1. Yep. As I was writing this, uh, I, I was having people uh, test drive it, uh, use it uh, in their congregations in a in a, uh, an unpublished form to see what they thought and give me feedback. And one of my colleagues, a close friend of mine, who's a pastor in Delaware, um, had a, a student who, who, even though I tried to make this information understandable, as you say, not, not too difficult, was still struggling with some of the terminology. So he suggested to mm. me, why not add a glossary? And I thought, that's a great idea. So I put a glossary at, at the end of the book, and really just most of the definitions are, are in the book already. So, so that's another review tool, but it's also something that some people just struggle with words and, and it's an opportunity for them to, to be able to go somewhere and not feel like they need some kind of additional resources, but it's all one-stop shopping. Yeah. And the, and, and the appendix not only has a glossary, but then it also has a, a section on um, reform liturgy. Um, I think it's called the sample liturgy. Yes, it is. It's called the sample liturgy where you take it through um, each element of worship and, and, the justification for it. You know, we don't just do this because something I've labored to try to tell the congregation here um, where I'm pastoring is, you know, we don't just do this stuff because this is what this just, just sounds really good to do. There's a biblical justification for why we have a call to worship. There's a biblical justification why we do, why we have a pastoral prayer, why we have an offering, why we preach, why we uh, sing hymns. There's a reason for that. We don't just do it because that's what Christians have done for the last 1500 years, although that's not a bad reason, it's not the reason. And so I think that's a very helpful appendix um, for people to understand this isn't just tradition, um, but it's rooted in biblical truth. And that's why we do it, because God has told us to do it. And this is where he's told us. And so I I do think that's very helpful. Yeah, I wrote that. That was written quite a bit earlier than than, than the glossary and even um, some of the chapters, in the sense that I think worship is is such a minefield. It's it's often what makes or breaks people from 
uh, returning a second time to your church because they have all of these preconceived ideas about what should be happening in worship. Um, oftentimes, singing trumps everything, and and ra- you know sometimes they, they they characterize your church as well. You're too traditional. We want something more contemporary. Right. And you know, and all of those words are they all suffer from the same problem. They're all subjective. They're all matters of taste. Yep. What does God have to say about this? And, That's right. you know, I, I, I certainly, if you're going to use those words, I certainly prefer a worship service that, that is more traditional, but I see that it's very possible to incorporate our liturgy into something more contemporary, even though I might not enjoy it as much, it is possible and permissible. Um, the purpose is not to try to, to to solve those problems as much as what should we be doing and why do we do it? Uh, why is the regulative principle not some stick-in-the-mud principle, but why is it um, an important principle in understanding what God has to say about this and preserving liberty of conscience? Yep. Um, the dialogical principle, which is... I think that's a lesser-known principle, and it's come to light more in recent years as we've had uh, a revision uh, to our own Directory of Public Worship in, in the OPC. There's a lot of debate about that, and I think the dialogical principle has become more overt now. Um, this idea that God is speaking and His people are responding, that worship is a dialogue, that there's real drama taking place, and we don't need to manufacture drama because the very nature of worship is, is, is a conversation. And, and bringing that out biblically, certainly that's not a, a, an issue that's going to make or break whether you're a true or false church. Uh, but, but, it, but again, it, it provides for a healthier church when, when, we, when we can see worship that way. Yep. So, yeah, I, I appreciate the whole book. I think it's, it's well done. I think it's it's helpful, and it, and if used correctly, it'll be very helpful and beneficial to um, those that are trying to understand these things and trying to work through these things. And with some guidance, and what the book does provide that, but with some pastoral guidance, elders guiding new members and whatever, uh, whoever along, um, it'll accomplish. I think the goal that you've set out for it to accomplish. Um, I think in the long run. Now, how can the listeners get a, get a hold of this? Well, it's uh, in other words, how well, can they buy it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's not it's not an expensive book. Uh, no, it, it's widely available on Amazon, and uh, I know Westminster Bookstore in Philadelphia is carrying it at a discounted rate. You can order it from the publisher as well, from Christian yep, ChristianFocus.com. Yep. Uh, so you're going to find it all over the internet. It's on eBay right now, and Personally, I, I'm not looking to become independently wealthy uh, from writing this book. I just want people to be able to have it as a resource, to give it to people, to show people that deep things can be can be presented in an understandable way. You don't need to be, you don't need to have a master's degree to read this book. And sure. I want I want it to be for for every all kinds of people in our in our churches and. People maybe we're just reaching out to who who want a little bit learn a little bit more about what Christianity is. Yep, yep. Well, the title of the book for those who are haven't been paying attention <laughs> is Presbytopia. So it's Presbytopia. What it means to be a Presbyterian. It's written by Ken Golden. He is an OPC minister um, out in Davenport, 
Iowa. Just out of curiosity, how far is that from um, Decorah? Um, probably about uh, two hours, maybe. Okay, I have a good friend who's a ruling elder in the PCA, um, who is a professor at Luther College in Decorah. So, just curious. <laughs> Always looking to looking out for him, as it were. But uh, yeah. Um, but anyway, written by Ken Golden. If you want to get a copy of the book, you can go to the ChristianFocus.com website. That's the publisher. Of course, Amazon, uh, WTS Bookstore. Um, it's it's everywhere, as you've just heard. And so, would I really encourage you to get a copy of it if you're um, if you're an elder in the church and you want to have a better uh, structure in your dealings with other members in the church and maybe young Christians in the church and um, this this gives you some of that foundation, and it, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. I mean, I mean, why do that? It's been done for you, and so that you can tailor make it to to your needs. But it's it lays that foundation and it helps you go forward. Um, if you're a new member in the church and want to know more about what Presbyterian is, what Presbyterianism is, why we believe what we believe, these these critical issues, then by all means get a, get a copy of it. Encourage your pastor, your session, to buy a bunch of copies for people in the church and give it out. Um, you know, as, as has been said, it's not very expensive and um, be well worth your time uh, to distribute that amongst the, among the members within your own congregations. Ken, it's been great talking with you on this subject. I'm very encouraged by the book and um, maybe encourage my elders to get more than just one copy. I have one, um, but I tend to get them for nothing because of what I do. Uh, <laughs> right. But uh, but like to see more in the hands of the people here where I'm pastoring, but you know wherever, um, it, it, the Lord would be pleased to use it. But thanks for being on. It's been really a good conversation. Well, I appreciate giving me this opportunity, Bill. Thanks, thanks a lot for what you do and um, I appreciate that very much. Yep, you're welcome. Hang on the line just a minute. Let me just wrap up Wrap up with the listeners what is coming up on the program. I'm prepared today, and I have it actually in front of me for once. Coming up next week, we'll be talking with David Randall. He's he's written a book, A Sad Departure, and it's, it's about the Church of Scotland. So um, if you want to know more about it, you can go and, and Google it but uh, or stay tuned to the podcast. And we're going to be talking with the author who details for us uh, this very issue that has happened um, over in Scotland. So that is what is coming up, a little about what's coming up on the program. Of course, we have the normal monthly faith and practice with Dr. Piper, where you, the listener, writing your questions, and he answers on the air. If, we, if he does, uh, you get $10 off at the Banner of Truth uh, online store. So it's a win-win situation for you. You get a good theological answer from a, from a well-respected theologian, and you get $10 to buy a book. So can't really go wrong with that. That's a great way to build your library. So send your questions in. We have the form there on the website, confessingourhope.com. Just send it in, and uh, we'll take care of it from there. So until next time, when we talk with David Randall on this particular book that he's written, A Sad Departure, uh, we do thank you for listening to this particular edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of the Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. And God bless.